The Big News Coming Soon podcast is proudly sponsored by BRB Homes. BRB Homes is Ireland's number one award-winning manufacturer of factory-built homes. We take your home from start to finish. Our homes are A-rated and meet planning regulations. We build to your requirements and your budget. The cost includes your home being turnkey and our chartered engineer's fees. Please get in touch for reviewing of our show homes a brochure or for more information let brb homes take the stress out of your build check out brbhomes.ie ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Welcome to this week's podcast and I am coming to you live from Dublin with Colm Flynn. And this series of the podcast has been me talking to people who I really want to talk to, who I really admire, who I really look up to and who I want to get to know a little bit better. And since before I started doing this podcast... (laughs) And that guy wasn't available, so here I am. (laughs) Since before this podcast even started, me and you have been in touch, and I've been asking you to meet up even for a coffee or just to have a Zoom because you're never in the country. But I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today, Colin, because I like that. I have looked up to you for years and everything you've done and everything you achieve. And it's a great honour to be sitting here today. Alan, you wrote the script I gave you perfectly. Thank you for that. No, honestly, I, I go into every <laughs> podcast with a blank page. So, um, no, hey, thanks for asking me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on with you on, on such a successful podcast. So congratulations. Well, how, how do you measure success? I don't know. But tell us a little bit about yourself. What age are you, first of all? Oh, do I have to? Oh, no. Come on. Come on. Okay, I'm 34 years old or young what is that years young you're 34 years young. you're taking notes here this is like a counseling session go on my problem started 20 years <laughs> now uh, 34 years young i hope and from ennis in county clare and i'm living now in rome the eternal city okay before we get to rome let's talk about ennis ennis is a beautiful little town the information age town did in, you enjoy uh, growing up there yeah great it's a, just a gorgeous little town with narrow streets Good school, great family life. 
you know, I don't know about you, but I feel very lucky when you hear people and I interview people all the time for work who have stories from their past and maybe things that happened to them at school. I'm just back from Canada where I was um, doing a report about people who were affected by the residential schools. So you often hear these stories of what people had to go through in life. And I think, wow, we had like this heavenly upbringing in a beautiful town with good friends and of course with the trials and tribulations, but just like a great there's this reoccurring theme throughout some of my podcasts with slippers in national schools. Did you have to wear slippers in your national school? No. No. Slippers in, in the national school? Yeah, it must have been a bit of a bit of a shithole you were in, I'm not going to lie. I know, we went in <laughs> trailing in the mud and the dirt and the No, I'm only messing. Face. Like, there's this thing, I don't know, is it just in Mayo or not, but we had to wear slippers in national school. To keep the floor clean? Yeah, we weren't allowed to bring our runners or shoes into the classroom. But Alan, you see, there's the difference between you and I. You come from a posh upbringing. <laughs> you went bad. to a posh school. I went to Christian Brothers, the nitty gritty no. CBS and Ennis. I went to Christian Brothers school as well. So you done the leave insert? Uh, just about, yeah. I barely passed that. You know? What did you do no, after that? Um, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, we work in media and... There's such a hype in the country about the leaving cert and this is the end all and the be all and this will dictate the rest of your future, which for many people it does in the sciences and in different professions. But for media, it doesn't really matter the leaving cert. Now, obviously, you've got to do the best you can and do a good leaving cert, but you're so wound up to think that this is going to make or break you. And it, since I left working with uh, whether it was RTE or the BBC or EWTN or any network, no one ever asked, well, how did you do in school? What did you do in college? It's all, okay, you want to be a cameraman? Show me something you filmed. You want to be an editor? Show me what you can cut. You want to be a reporter? Show me how you can make reports. Um, so I did just okay in the Leaving Cert. And then I went to Tala in Dublin to the IT in Tala. But when you were doing your Leaving Cert, media is what you wanted to do. Yeah, always. Always wanted to do media since I was a little kid. And when I was doing my Leaving Cert, I was working in my local radio station, Claire FM. So I was even, I was on air doing shows like sometimes like right up against exams and when I should have been studying I was on doing a film for two hours covering a presenter and I thought this is the best thing in the world. You were and really lucky then. You got into the industry before you even had to go to college. Yeah I was 16. I was in uh, secondary school when I got in. I just kept hounding my local radio station. They said no and I said that's what you think. I'll come back again and I wouldn't take no for an answer. So what kind of things did you do then at 16? Like, did Oh I was making the tea I was out on the street, just Vox Pops, Vox Pops, the Latin for voice of the people, Vox Pop. Did you enjoy them? Because everyone yeah. in the industry hates them. I, I know, that's true. Well, at the start, you're very nervous. It's such a, to approach a stranger with a microphone. And it's not only approach a stranger, but it's you to approach a stranger and not take no for an answer. And ask them something personal, like, would you vote for Sinn Féin or Fianna Fáil? Or, yeah. or how do you think Fianna Gael are going to do? When I started, Alan, it was 2005, March 2005. And I remember that because the week I started doing, when I was 16, doing my work experience in Clare FM, it was the week that Pope John Paul II died. So Pope John Paul II died and I was working on the daytime talk show. And I said, I'll go out in the street and I'll ask people what are their memories of Pope John Paul II. And then I went over to the nuns who were across from the station. And But I've always enjoyed Fox Pops. I've always found them easy. Really? Um, yeah. And when I w moved from Claire FM to RTE, now this was more difficult. But when I joined the John Murray show, I was the most junior on the team. So sometimes they would want Vox Pops in the morning and they would send me out. But imagine this. The John Murray show started at 9am in the morning. 
So I had to go out and hit the streets at 7.30. Oh, no. Get people to talk, have it edited and put together for 9 a.m. And people, like, don't want to talk at 8 a.m. on Grafton. So I would go to Grafton Street. I would stop everyone. But most people would just pass you by. They didn't want to talk. It was 8 in the morning. On a Monday morning, it was wet. And you're asking them some stupid question or about... And they're like, to go on Radio 1? No, 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 no. But... You, you realize that in this game, I couldn't turn around to the producers and say, couldn't do it. You have to get it done and you got to get the voices. So, But you, you have develop, a very friendly develop, face. Yeah, it, it's going in friendly. It's going in with a smile. And I always, the trick I found was while you're telling people about the question you're going to ask, I would see people who are starting saying, I want, do you mind if I ask you this question? And I'll tell you what it is first. I would know. Say, listen, can I just ask you, and you're putting out the mic while you do it with a smile, it's just an easy question. It's about what are your summer plans? Are you going to travel abroad this year or not? And it just take two seconds and they're on. And then they give you an answer. But then I had to go out and I asked people, I remember once the John Murray Show asked me to go and ask people about their sex lives. How many times a week they have sex. I took up to people and asked them this. Did you get any phone numbers that day? No, well, I wasn't Alan. I'm I'm a constant professional. But I was surprised at how willing people were to talk about that subject. I thought I would get nothing. But I was surprised. And and more older people as well were giving me answers, not just younger people. And I thought, and then you got some crazy answers. And so anyway, the Vox Pops are great because you cover everything and it gives you a lot of confidence. But when I went to America and I lived in America... So easy doing Vox Pops there because everyone wants their five minutes of fame. So people were so willing to talk. And it was a dream. Recording people on the street in America is a dream because they're all like in a movie. It just reminded me, do you remember that uh, episode of The Late Late Show with Gay Byrne where he had the sex expert on and the guy phoned in and he said, hey Gay, would you mind asking that lady how many times a week I should be doing it? Did you ever see that? No, I didn't see that. It's on YouTube and I think he ended up being from Mayo. I think he's. I think it was like John from Shrewd or something like that. Is it that. a family member of yours or something? No, it wasn't, but you'll have to Google it. <laughs> so the thing I like about you and the thing, I, the, the reason I admire you so much and follow oh, you please, on that. Instagram, on. honestly, <laughs> is because there's there's no one in this country, there's very few people in this country that can do what you do. Have you been drinking? No, I haven't, not Are yet. Are you sure? But you do a little bit of everything, don't you? You can. You, you, you did bring a bottle of whiskey now. Did you drink some of that no, before I we didn't, started? No, I didn't. Honestly, no. You do, you can do a little bit is that has that stopped? No, that's still recording. Oh, sorry, I nine twenty-five. Um, the thing I admire the most about you is that you can do a little bit of everything. You can produce, you can edit, you can speak to the camera, and there's in this industry there's people that can kind of do one or two things, but you can do four or five different things. Yeah, because I always loved doing it as a kid. And when I was a kid, you don't have a TV crew to work with. So if you want to make a little video, you have to make it yourself. So that meant I was running around with my parents' camcorder making the videos. But I also love the technology. I love the technical side of it. And when I was a kid, I was just as fascinated by the content and the idea of being a reporter or a presenter. I was equally as fascinated by the technology. How does someone sit in front of a camera that's connected to a transmitter that is beamed across a country where instantly someone with an antenna and a TV can watch? I would just love the physics of it as well and the technology. So I would start collecting equipment and I would build my own studio. And it is true, and I often say it to people who are starting out in the business now, that if you are creative and technical, if you're both, you're unstoppable. If you are creative and technical, there's nothing really that can stop you. If you're one or the other, it's going to be much more difficult. 
that was a thing of the past where even in RTE, uh, when I started, that was kind of ending. The unions, everyone had to do one specific role and that was it. Now when they advertise for radio producers, they say in the job description they must be able to do video editing as well. You know, from working in local radio, you're expected to do producing, social media, on air if you have to. So there's an expectation now that you should be able to do it all. But I, I take what you're saying because I've been doing it so long. I hope, I think I can do it all pretty well, which is a bit unusual because some people can do a bit of everything but not do it that well. Whereas I like to think that I always want to keep the standard kind of rocket high. We got in contact when I was producing the Tommy Marin show with Midwest Radio. and Great show. I'd contact you and I'd say... Oh God, you're in, wherever you're in, would you come on and have a chat with us? And the, I guess the thing people don't appreciate at home listening is we would normally just ring someone on their phone and have a chat with them and say, hey, what's it like there in Belarus or wherever you are? You went back to your apartment. It's you, great in Belarus. I'm loving it here. Yeah. You built a studio like this, you know, you set up your mixer, you set up your microphones, you set up everything to come on a little radio station in Mayo for a six minute chat. You always went that extra mile and that's what people don't see. And like I even said to you one day, hey, come here, we're not going to set up the Zoom because it was a pain in the arse on our end. And you were like, oh, do you think you could set up the Zoom? Like you were pushing us. You were even pushing us and we were the one asking you on. And that's the thing that I really admire, you know. So we've we've been in touch then since that. And I think it's, it's always the way I think when I'm doing TV or radio. Why do it? 80% if you can do it 100%. Yeah. And it drives me mad with radio stations, uh, not your radio station, not Midwest, we're complete pros, but other radio stations who call me up and even sometimes on the BBC, different shows, and they say, come on, the World Service, the BBC World Service, you've been pumped out around the world on every continent, we'll do the interview over the phone. And I think that it's it's phone quality. Now, I know most people don't can't distinguish or they don't care the content is king. But I'm thinking, okay, if we just put a little bit more work into this and we go the extra mile, we have all of these microphones and equipment, I can come to you broadcasting from wherever it is in the world I may be in perfect quality. But you know what's really impressive about that? You're coming on Midwest for five or six minutes. You don't get paid for that. You put all this extra effort on yourself. But it's, it reflects on me. Anything I do, I'm like, if it's my voice on air talking... I just want it to sound... But it's very impressive that you go the extra mile. Maybe when I lived in New York for five years, they don't do anything by halves in the media there. And I love that. When I watch the big TV networks, even if they have a presenter on, a reporter coming from the field, they could be on for 30 seconds and I'll watch them go on and the lighting is immaculate. And I know they've got 10 lights set up and they'll have the best camera, the best lens... They just give it 100%, even if it's 60 seconds of television. And I think I want to apply that to everything I do. Just it to be really good every time, each time, and with no exceptions. Who did you look up to growing up then? Who, who were you looking at and going, God, he is a pro. I'd love to be like him or her. Uh, the answer is so obvious, like Gay Byrne and uh, Pat Kenny, people like that. Just, um, just a smooth as silk on air. I know Pat's got an engineering background as well, so knew the technology um, and gay just being able to do light entertainment being able to flip and do a serious topic being able to do something thought provoking people like that yeah when was the first time you were on TV then doing a piece to camera oh the first time I was on um, when I was a kid RT Children's Television would come and do features on me every now and then and Stop the it. den would come down and Satitude and different shows because I was making videos in my shed 
So they would take that. But the first time I think I was really on TV was with the Today Show. Come on now, you were on The Den. I was on The Den a few times. Who yeah. was the presenter? Was it Ray Darcy or uh, who was it? Ray was presenting it and it was, you won't, maybe you will remember, a show called Cyberstream. It's not there ringing was, a bell. There was Sportstream, there was Cyberstream. There was a guy called Kevin who used to dub Kevo here and him and Steve Curran. It's a guy called Steve Curran, I think it was Steve, and who's working in production still today. They did this show together and I was a guest in it, but that was within The Den. But then when it went back to Ray Darcy and Saki and Dusty, they were referencing me in the program because I had built a studio in my shed. This is why I had no friends growing what up. What age are you here? I, don't, I was like maybe 12, 10, 11, 12 or 13. Oh 13. my yeah, I, I built God. a little studio in my shed and I set up Den 3 because Den 2 was on TV or T2. So I made Den 3 and I had puppets and I had a little set. So we would send these videotapes to RT and then they came down and did a feature on me. And then Ray Darcy and um, Saki and Dusty did a big skit in the studio that I was taking over and that they were out of a job. The DG say, Cullum and Den 3 are here and they have to go. And they did this great graphic of the mast at RT exploding and falling down. And that was meant to be me taking them down. Wow. Yeah. And showbiz, baby. Where did your technical <laughs> help come from? Was your dad technical or? No, they... My dad works, he's a very successful sheet metal business. My mother's a teacher, Tom and Noreen Flynn, both Scottish. But I just, um, you just got taught myself, yeah. I just taught myself, yeah. Being on the den at that age was like was winning cool. the Eurovision. That was yeah. like, well, mega. Yeah. No, I loved it and it encouraged me. I was like, oh, this is great. I'm doing the right thing. I got to keep at this. And um, That was huge. Everyone yeah. in your school must have been like. But I was never happy with it. I was always, I want to be the guy presenting the den. I want to be the producer making the den. Like, I just want to be there. I don't want to wait. And that's what always drove me forward. So did you move to America then? No, I, well, after college, I joined Radio One, Radio Fun, as we call it, here in Ireland. And I joined the John Murray Show. And I did that for five years. And that was great. Worked with the producers who I really learned from. And wow, that's what it means to be a producer. This is how you put together a, a radio show. There was a producer there called Margaret Curley. Just an exceptional producer. And then after, that was for five years, that lasted for five years. John Murray, sadly, was suffering from depression. He spoke openly about that. So the show came to an end. And then I was kind of left with the choice. What do I do now? Do I stay in Radio 1 and work on, there was the Ray Darcy show had come in. There were other programs where I want to work on them. I'd be a researcher with the John Murray show. I was on air as well as behind the scenes. And then I started doing work with the Today Show on television with Dahi Mora and then Nationwide. So I kind of kept that going. But then RTE as they do, you know, contracts and short-term contracts and you have to break contracts and this and that. And then I thought, do I, as many other people are faced with that decision, do you hang around RTE and wait for opportunities or do you go and kind of make your own opportunities somewhere else? So then I decided... um, I'm going to go off and go to the States. So I left on good terms and I said, let's keep working together in a freelance capacity. And I went over for five years to uh, New York City, baby. So did you go to New York with no opportunities? You just landed there yeah. with a sleeping bag? I went with, uh, I booked myself into a hotel for the first couple of months. I worked out a good deal with a hotel on Madison Avenue in Manhattan. I went in, charmed them, got a good rate. But you had and, no plan? Uh, no plan, no. no. Well, my plan was to get work. But you didn't have a contact? No. No, I had nothing. So I went over and I had a rule in my head called five by nine, which was every morning column five by nine. You have to send five emails by 9 a.m. So this isn't a holiday because when you go somewhere like this, it's easy to fall into the trap of going to Irish bars. 
living the New York dream. But I would get up every morning, I would leave the hotel, I would go down to a diner, and I loved it. New York City, the honking of the traffic even that early, sitting in this diner, watching all these larger-than-life characters coming in, and I'd have my laptop, and, um, honey, you want a coffee? Yeah, please, you're here again, you're coming every morning. And I'd sit there and I would start banging off emails to BBC, to NBC, to RTE. I have an idea, I want to do this story, I want to do that. And then 90% of the time, they wouldn't respond. 8% of the time, they would say, we're not interested. But then 2% out of 100, you might get an email saying, oh yeah, we like that story, we commission it, go do it. So that's how I started then with the BBC. I just kept hammering them with ideas. Because New York has, it's such a great place for what I love to do, human interest stories. People from all over the world have come to New York to chase their dreams in not just theatre, but in business and anything. The first interview I did in New York was with a deaf Uber driver. And his dream was to have a life where he could do something, make a better life for himself. He'd come from Ukraine, where in the law in Ukraine at the time, when he grew up, if you were deaf, you were allowed to become a gym coach or a tailor, he told me. They were the only two jobs you could get. And his parents saved up money and got him a one-way ticket to New York and he became an Uber driver because with Uber you can see the map and um but I said you can't hear the sound you can't hear the traffic and all that and he said I can see the sounds of New York I can see it how did you communicate with him we I that's a good question we had a translator a interpreter so I had a signer beside me and I would say Yuri was his name Yuri what was it like as a young deaf teenager arriving in New York City from rural Ukraine and then I would wait a second and the guy would go like this. He would sign back and the guy I had was just very good at acting out the voice. So he was his voice. And while he was watching him sign, he'd say, well, Colm, it was unbelievable. I mean, arriving from JFK. And then he told a great story about when he first arrived and he went down to uh, Manhattan. He was so scared and everything was so big and the buildings. And he bumped into this big guy and he went, oh. And he said, I remember the guy looked at me and was shouting at me, but he couldn't hear. And the guy was like, and then he went like this. He signaled to him like, I can't hear, I'm deaf. And the guy went as if like, you're going to be okay, buddy. And he said from then on, he knew he'd be okay. And he built, a, and then he got married in New York. He had two daughters, beautiful daughters, so you can hear perfectly. They went on to university. And um, he, he was just such a beautiful man. And it was such a beautiful interview. He died during COVID. He got COVID and he died. Yeah. I think he was young in his fifties uh, or something like that. God love him. Yeah, but he was the first person I interviewed uh, in New York City. And was that for TV or radio? For radio, radio is great because you don't need the expense. Television's expensive. Camera crew, a cameraman in New York is anywhere between fifteen hundred dollars and seventeen hundred dollars a day before expenses. That's just to film it. Just to and give come you the footage and say and give you the footage without editing. So if you, and often when we're in New York, the last time I was in New York, we were shooting with three cameras, three cameramen for an interview you know, camera one, camera two, camera three. So like thousands, and then they need their expenses paid, hotels, petrol. It's thousands just to do a story. For radio, you just need you and a mic. Were you always very comfortable being on your own? E, probably not, no. And uh, I was uh, always going to cafes and coffee shops in New York are a great place to meet people, especially when they hear you talking on the phone and they realize you're Irish. Because I, I find it quite difficult to go into a coffee shop on my own. Why do you, because what? I don't know why. I just find it difficult. Well, find it's it difficult to enter a restaurant and have dinner on your own. I That's find that a, a difficult, difficult thing to do. But a coffee shop, you could go in and sit in your laptop. No, would you find that difficult? I do, yeah. Yeah. I'm just not comfortable doing it. 
because you think people think you're no friends or you're I don't know what it is I don't really care what people think thank God at this stage of my life but I just it's just something that I find hard to do go in and sit there and be on my own and just just sit there and have a coffee but you know but would it not excite you and this is what excites me when I go in I'm I always think who am I going to meet today like <laughs> in, in New York or in Rome in Rome I go to a coffee shop every morning and I think and this, the tables are all really close together and I think every morning I'm like a kid going in at 8am and I think who am I going to meet today but I watch your Instagram and you come on you say hey this is um, Katrina and Katrina is from wherever she's from and I've just met her do you like force uh, Katrina, yourself to, sorry I've the just one, hit the mic the, there the one that got away Katrina do you, do you force yourself to talk to them no or, uh, Sometimes I do, but I'm editing on my laptop and I'm doing my work. And then I sometimes I like a little break and I take out my headphones and I have a tea. And often when you can see the laptop there, when you're editing TV stuff, it looks extremely interesting because you've got different images, you're moving pictures around. So often people will say, sorry, do you mind me asking you, what are you working on there? Or because I work with the Vatican um, and the Pope at the moment, I might have Pope Francis and I'm looking through footage. So people know he's involved in the media or he is doing something with television and they're generally interested, but I'm I'm not an interesting person. I I interview very interesting people, so I'm always more interested in them. So then I'll say to the person who's sitting beside me, "Oh yeah, I work in TV and I do this. Where are you from? Oh, we're from Utrecht in the Netherlands. Oh wow, I was in Holland recently. Or oh, I'm you meet a lot of Americans in Rome now on holidays. I'm from Florida. I'm from uh, Columbus, Ohio, and I've got a million questions to ask them then." Oh, how's everything going politically in the country? I was in Columbus, Ohio before. I've never been to Cincinnati, Ohio. But you know, it's just, I love people. How did you go from America then to working in Rome? I took an aeroplane and I forget the make and model, but <laughs> it took me right over. It didn't stop anywhere. But how does it go from you making your own documentaries to working inside the Vatican? Well, I'm technically still freelance. I was always freelance in the States, which I think is a great thing. And I tell people, you know, some people will tell you when they're freelance, oh, it's difficult because you go through periods of no work and then periods of being extremely busy. Whereas I find I haven't had a day off since I've been 19 or since I left school. It's just been busy all the time. But I think that's I mean, probably personality flaw as well and that I'm a workaholic and I rarely take holidays and stuff. But I was living in New York and I was very happy, but as well as doing the BBC stuff and stuff for RTE, I was always doing work for a Catholic television channel as well on the side called EWTN, Eternal Word Television Network, based in the Deep South, in Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama, started by a nun way back when called Mother Angelica, started it in her shed of the convent making videotapes for a small local network and is now the largest religious broadcaster in the world with hundreds of staff broadcasting all over the globe in different languages has newspapers, has radio output, has offices and countries all over the place. How did you get in with them? I We grew up, uh, I had them in the house. My came from a good Catholic family and my dad had went and bought a satellite dish one day so that we would have EWTN in the house. So this was before Sky and all that. So we had Channel RT1, 2, TV3, TG Car, and then EWTN. And I was fascinated, these nuns and priests on talking. But it wasn't just... Um, you know, the rosary or daily mass, which they would have, but they would have just uh, discussion programs about Catholic issues, about issues of morals, about anything. And so when I was making programs for RTE as a freelancer, I could sell them off or different edits of them afterwards. And then a few times I did a program 
in Ecuador and South America with the priests there. I did an interview in South Africa with a nun for Nationwide. And then afterwards, I sent it to EWTN, just found their address online, posted them a DVD, no link in those days. And uh, six months later, they called me and said, we can't buy that program for different reasons. But can we ask you to make programs for us? Are you in the market for making programs? And I said, sure. And so they said, okay, we'll give you this amount of money. Here's the program we want you to make. And so I did that. And then it started a great relationship for, that went on for years. And then, like anything in the media, start small. And then they realize this guy doesn't mess up. We can trust him. He delivers the results on time. So then they started saying, hey, can we book you for a month out of each year to go to Australia for a month and do programs in Australia? Can you go to South Korea, they sent me? Can you go to all the Scandinavian countries, do a series there? Can you go to Africa? And then they said to me one day when I was in New York, come work for us full time. We need a Vatican correspondent. Not working for the Vatican or for the church, but reporting on the Vatican. We need someone who's good, who gets it, who can also have a critical eye on the church, who's a professional journalist, but gets the sensitivities of the faith and knows the questions to ask, knows the difference between a bishop and a cardinal and all that kind of stuff. And I said no, first of all, because I was having a good time in New York. And then uh, 2020, the pandemic hit New York very hard. Everybody was rioting over Black Lives Matter, people who didn't care about Black Lives before that, and all these friends who you and I know, and people who are posting the black squares and up on their high horses, who have never mentioned it since, because it's not popular on social media anymore. And then the election was coming up, and everybody was fighting in America, and you dare not have an opinion that went against the popular narrative. And so they offered me the job again. And I thought, you know what, maybe now would be a good time to move across the beautiful Rome. Uh, did you do an interesting story on a landlord that yes. was given away free rent? Yeah, that was, was he one a mechanic of her... or something. Yeah, he, he's a... he was a pure New York, wasn't the he? The joke like... is that he's in the mafia. I hope he doesn't see this. He was like a real, like, yeah. Italian American, uh, every human life. It wasn't a human life, it was a human life. Oh, uh, yeah. It went and viral, didn't it? It went crazy viral. I One morning, I remember sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn and I was flicking through the New York Times and I saw a small little piece. Like, no picture, just, you know, NY landlord waves rent for tenants. And I was like, oh. And I read it, Mario Salerno of Brooklyn, New York, yeah. is waving the rent for his 200 tenants. Now, 200 tenants. We were talking about rent before this. In Brooklyn, Brooklyn's gentrified now, and it's, um, it's an expensive place. So you're looking at like a 1,000 a head, at least a 1,000 each. So this guy's losing probably a quarter of a million dollars, conservative estimate, for a month. And he's a car mechanic. He's got a small mechanics. Now you do the math. What else is going on here? I'm joking. I'm joking. It's all above board. Pablo Escobar was a taxi driver. Uh, exactly. And <laughs> then I was like reading down. I thought, uh, and he's in near me in Brooklyn. And I thought, no. But I thought, because I was working then full time with EWTN, even though I was still in New York. And I thought, could I? And I rang him. I rang Salerno, body shop, got Mario on the phone. Is this Mario? Mario Salerno, what can I do for you? I said, I read the piece. I'm a journalist. I don't want to talk to no journalist. I don't want to do nothing. I'm just helping human lives out here. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this guy is such a character. I need him on camera. And then he said, where are you from anyway? And I, normally I might say to people, oh, we're doing it for the BBC because instantly recognizable brand. If you say RTE, they don't know what that is over there. And I said, actually, I was thinking for EWTN, it's about to explain, it's the global, and he goes, is that the prayer channel? I was like, yeah, it's the Catholic channel. 
every morning I put on the prayer channel, I read the Bible and all this. And he said, I'll do it only for you. Come on down. And I rang my cameraman. I said, get in. The, I'm sending you an Uber. Get in now. We're going to do the story. We just arrived. He was there and no patience. The minute we arrived, he's like, hey, what do you want to do? Because, you know, normally sometimes we need time. Mario, give us half an hour to set up the, the camera. We'll pick a nice shot. He was like, no, no, let's go. Let's go. I got clients to see. So I, I said, Patrick, just start filming everything. And he, he because he didn't know we were coming, he, he didn't dress up for camera. He didn't put on a suit. He was wearing a purple tracksuit, a Puma purple tracksuit, <laughs> top and bottom. The police were there getting their cars fixed. He had a pile of donuts for the... It was like you couldn't make it up. He had donuts in a box for the police. And me and Patrick were like, this guy is... He's all connected here. Yeah. The police were all in his hand. He was going around. Hey, Jackie, get that car in. Everyone who come in, I kept hearing him saying again, don't worry, we'll sort you out. Don't worry about it, you know. And he was great. And we put the thing up and it got millions and millions of views. Then he was invited on the Ellen Show two weeks later. Then... The crazy thing with Mario, sometimes when you work in television, people think you've got all the connections in the world. And Mario rang me and he couldn't believe how much attention it had got. I said, you put me on the map. He's like, you put Mario Salerno on the map all over the world. He's reading the comments on YouTube. I am watching in Colombia. I'm watching in South Africa. So he couldn't believe his, he was famous now. And he was like, you did this for me. So I was joking with the cameraman. I was like, it's great to have the mob on side if we ever need them. <laughs> and then he was like, Colm, if there's anything you ever need, you give me a call. And I was like, that's great, Mario. Thanks. Then uh, an hour later, his son called me, Sal Salerno. Say, hey, I'm Sal Salerno. I'm Mario's son. If you ever need anything, you give me a call. And I was like, this, you couldn't script. This is unbelievable. But then a few weeks later, he called me and he's like, it's Mario Salerno. I was like, Mario, of course, I remember you. What can I do for you? You know, you put me on TV. I have one request for you. And I was like, okay, now I, <laughs> what do I have to do? He said, I want to meet Donald Trump. He's like, I want to meet the president of the United States. You can make it happen. I know you can. I was like, Mario, I mean, I have no connections to the White House or the president. I, I can't do that. I know you can do it. So then he hung up and I was like, Patrick, my cameraman, who's from Sligo, I said, he wants to meet Donald Trump. Like what? So then I thought, and I said, I've got a producer in Washington who may, so I rang her and said, Susie, who do we know at the White House? <laughs> like this is never going to happen, but who do we know? So I can tell Mario, I sent the tape in and there's nothing more I can do. She said, actually, I'm friendly with one of Donald Trump's script writers. Now, normally you have to go through all the official channels, like the communications people. I should have, and it would just never get anywhere. And she was like, maybe I can send it to the script writer because they're very close to him. And so she rang me back a few days later and said, I sent the report you did to the script writer. She said, oh, he'll love this because he's New Yorker. He's a New Yorker. He's in real estate. He's, this guy's in real estate. Uh, she said she's going to show it to Donald Trump. And that I thought, okay, I'm still not going to hear back. Then a, a couple of weeks later, I got a call from Susie and Susie said, guess who called me today? The White House. They want Mario's number. Stop it. And I, I said, what for? They said National Day of Prayer is coming up where they have this event in the Rose Garden at the White House, big official event. And they invite representatives of different faiths to say a prayer. And Donald Trump wants Mario to come and represent the Catholic faith. Because he kept saying in his report, I was driven to do this by my Catholic faith. That's why I waived the rent. 
And I said, you've got to be joking me. So from what went to me reading the article and going, this guy is Catholic. He knows EWTN. He'll be on camera. I was like, I thought it couldn't get any better. And it went viral. And now I'm like, and now he's going to go meet the president? Like, this is the best. So I rang Mario. I said, Mario, you have been invited to the White House for National Day of Prayer for the Rose Garden. The guy was nearly crying. So you're like Mario's agent at this stage. So Mario went. Donald Trump made a speech. It's up on, uh, you can see it on my Facebook page. He made a speech at the White House. He quoted nearly word for word my report. He said, I saw you on television and you were asked this and you said that. Nearly word for word what Mario said. And then he said, Mario, I want you to invite you up here. Come up and say a few words. And Mario went up and he was just hilarious speaking. And he praised Donald Trump and he had this pinstripe. I was hoping he would wear the purple tracksuit again. <laughs> I was like, I hope he wears that tracksuit. But we were watching it. Our, our jaws were on the ground. Watch, I mean, we watched it on television in New York live on CNN. and MSN. Mario, who we found in the Rose Garden at the White House, up at the podium, him and Donald Trump speaking. And Donald, uh, Mario rang me afterwards and he was like, you need anything in life, just call me. Did he ever put a few quid into your account? Uh, no, but, uh, you know, I should probably call and ask him for that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. How much are we talking? How much was that worth? <laughs> but it was just one of those things that's like one of the, it was just a great, great. Wow. Series of events. And it can only happen in New York. So now you're living in Rome. Yes. What's that? <laughs> now about? Mario wants to meet the Pope. Does he? Yeah, he asked me to meet, set up the Pope. So I haven't tried anything yet because I just... You know. He doesn't ask for much our Mario, does he? <laughs> for a fella that didn't even want you I to do I the can, interview. In hey, I can do Trump, I can do the Pope, but I, Alan Clark, that's a different, <laughs> I don't know if I can arrange a meeting I'd, with Alan. I'd be, I'd be like, I would, I'd be the opposite to you. I'd be like, Mario, put this into my account. Yeah, yeah. And then I'll make a few calls for you. <laughs> but just these characters that you meet, you know, they just think, wow, you, because you're connected in the media, you can make anything happen. Which you I know get that a lot with like things with... All Ireland tickets or yeah. up for the match. It's like, Alan, can you get me into the studio? I'm like, yeah. how can I do that? Yeah. I don't know anyone. Now, we do RT. have connections to some things we can make happen, which is, you know, we were interviewing Andrea Bocelli recently. Someone asked for something signed. Those kind of things you can do. But yeah. I want to meet the president of the United States. I'm like, so do I. You know, uh, can you help me out? <laughs> so tell me about where you live now. What's You're living in an apartment? I'm living in a beautiful apartment on a street called Borgo Pio which is one of the oldest streets in Rome, leading right up to the Vatican. And uh, yeah, as they say, La Vita Bella, the beautiful life. You take us on a journey every day on your Instagram and like it might even just be a cat sitting on a step or it might be a leaf on a tree. And the highlight just, of my day. I live a very boring life. You just friends. feel like you're there though. I, I live your life with you. But same Instagram. as you, you're, you're the Instagram king here with all the stuff you put up. I'm a bit of an idiot. I don't... I don't think I don't think as, I don't put as much thought into it as you do. No, but that's the beauty. People like that unfiltered. I need to do more of that. I'm too self-conscious working in television because you're social media first. You just put something up and you don't care about it. Yeah. And that's why people respond better to your stuff probably on social media whereas with me I've become used to the pampered life on camera and that there's so someone nothing, doing your someone doing your makeup and so when I do an Instagram I'm like oh do I look, my hair looks bad and it's not you know but okay. it's like that's the way you've become trained or oh the sound isn't perfect or the camera angle isn't right to or, be fair you are always immaculate like there isn't well, even a a bit of stubble out of place on your face it's like draw on uh, designer stubble it's a spray with like, a stencil did you get that in Brown Thomas I did yeah I just got it stenciled <laughs> on there you know but it's then the... you say like it's very glamorous and then a couple of weeks ago you're hanging out at the back of a pickup truck with these guys with big machine guns keeping you safe yeah how does yeah. it come from you're in Rome today and then tomorrow you're where Where were you then well in the last 14 weeks I've been in 12 countries 
Wow. And just at the for for some reason the job when I was offered it was uh, to be focused in Rome, but the job evolved, and that's the great EWTN is a great employer. They're great to work for. They really, really are, and they the job evolves, and they're open to that. So they're like, if you have good ideas and if there's good stories, you know, they're a global broadcaster, so they have to cover stories all over the world. And so now they've their job has kind of evolved into more of a European reporter correspondent. So where were you when you had these armed guards? It was in South Sudan in uh, in Africa. Were you intimidated there? Yeah, of course. South Sudan is one of the youngest countries in the world. It was only formed in 2011, I think, as a country after all these brutal and bloody civil wars. So the country is still building itself. Many parts are destroyed. There's no national power grid. There's no uh, water system. It's a poor, poor country. And with poor comes crime, comes kidnapping, comes all the trappings that you associate with poverty. So for a white person to go there, um, you know, with the TV crew, they know this person comes from a very wealthy background in their eyes. And we do, our part of the world, in comparison to that part of the world, is extraordinarily wealthy. And they know that. And you're going around... So we had security with us, the guys that you saw with the machine guns. Are they guns. private security? They were working for the police, the national police, that we paid cash in hand to just stay with us for three days, four days. So their salary, they told me, each police officer, they get around $4 a month. $4 a month. We paid them around $50 a day. Now, $50 a day in the Western world for tops, for good security is not much but you can imagine for them they could not believe getting $50 a day so they were there Wendy and and I understand you know that I we come from a very privileged position going in but if I'm going in as the producer reporter I'm responsible for the team so I went in with my cameraman so whatever about my safety I've been to Ecuador and I've been to uh, the slums of South Africa and the slums of Buenos Aires and Argentina on my own doing radio stuff or shooting stuff on my own and I go in with no security. But when I'm bringing in a team or bringing in a cameraman, it's kind of my responsibility. So you have to get the security. You have to book into a really good hotel, a five-star hotel, because they're the ones with the security and the big gates. Because if anything happened, it'd be, Cullum, you brought in my son. And to do this, you know, you're passionate about the report. You want to tell the story. He's doing his job filming and editing for you. Why didn't you give him the best security? So we, we, we hired all good security. Yeah. Did you feel 100% safe with them? No, no, no. And there was From times when we someone swung a metal bar at me at the street. We were filming on the street and uh, the cameraman was like, watch out. And I turned around this guy swung a metal bar and then one of the cops with the guns came in and like pushed him out of the way. Why was he doing that? Just to hurt you? Uh, who knows? Yeah. I, I think with the camera, they didn't like the camera pointing in their direction. They thought maybe we were from the government or were... Wow. A lot of them are in gangs as well. Another time I was filming out the window of a car, which I shouldn't have done, but I can't resist a good shot sometimes. So they told me, going through the town, Cullum, whatever you do, don't put your hand out filming with the phone. Somebody will take it's it. It's not done because there's still militant groups and there's um, different gangs against each other and they think it's one filming another one or whatever. And I just saw this great scene of these guys playing cards outside of a, a small little kind of bar. When I say bar, it's like a, a wood, a, a, a hut. So I was like, oh, I just can't resist. And I had the phone I was filming. And then one guy saw and he ran over and he grabbed it. And the police officers were in the back of the Jeep. And I just saw one of the police officers' hands come, his hand, and he just slapped him so hard in the face to like 
get rid of him I felt terrible afterwards but then that started a whole kerfuffle on the street and we kind of zoomed off and but you know life is cheap over there from watching it though these guys didn't look like they were trained to the best of their no ability. they were young lads I mean, yeah. the guys were the guys were young but they were in uniform and they had guns right you know but the corruption over there is just like I, I don't know like, if I if they're on 50 quid a day somebody could have paid them 100 quid a day to redirect you somewhere else not saying yeah, that but they would happen they, but yeah but the people that, over there wouldn't have 100 quid a day to do that you okay. know a gang wouldn't right. and to have 100 quid a day to now the thing that's dangerous over there is uh, kidnappings in the in the Democratic Republic of Congo next door uh, in South Sudan as well is kidnappings you know if they saw a westerner come in you could kidnap them and you could hold them ransom you know that their network will pay money their parents will pay money their country the government will pay money but that's happened before and people end up in jail for six, or like captured for years until something has worked out and a lot of people have a flat policy we don't negotiate with them um, hostages do your parents worry about you yeah they were worried when i went over there when i went to ukraine as well they were worried and but i laugh it off and i tell them it, but it's i don't want to make it sound like it's overly dramatic i mean maybe i'm naive but i but when you have your head screwed on, I think, no matter where you go, like I wasn't out walking the streets at night. We always had local priests with us and nuns. It's, and they're great because they know the local community. The local community know them. The local community respect them because they run the schools, they run the hospitals, they run the orphanage. So when people see them with the collar... They'd have mo- more respect for the collar than the gun. They'd have more respect for the collar than the government. And they think um, that person is helping the sick the uneducated, the this and that. So they think they're good people because whenever people would come up to me on the street, where are you from? What are you doing? I would say straight away, oh, I'm with Padre John, Father John. And they go, oh, you're with Father John or I'm with the sisters. And that get, they they leave you alone then. Now I still wouldn't try it at two in the morning walking through with an expensive camera or whatever. So you're obviously very religious. Yeah, yeah. I grew up Catholic. I go to Mass every Sunday. I um, Do you still go to Mass every Sunday? I still go to Mass every Sunday. Now, you might try not to miss the odd one if you were traveling all day through a country or something like that. Or, But yeah, I try and go every Sunday. Or if I'm passing a church, I would often, in Rome, uh, or anywhere I am, passing a church, and I'm normally going somewhere to a meeting or a shoot, but if I'm a little bit early and the doors are open, I'm always just think there's an invitation to go in and just say a quick prayer, uh, a prayer. I'm grateful for whatever, whatever is um, in my life I'm doing. Or I have this meeting coming up with the network. God, I hope it goes well. I hope this idea that I have comes gets off the ground. And I hope that these people who are unwell that I know are safe. Yeah. Do you feel like very specific things get answered? Yeah, I think when you look at like how we live, like we we're in the one percent in the world people talk about the one percent in america being the billionaires and it's complete bogus we are the one percent and how lucky we are you you have an iphone i have an iphone they were made on the back of people in china in a factory called foxconn who make very little money your clothes and my clothes are probably made in indonesia or the philippines or bangladesh or somewhere like that like if people were paid proper salaries like we are for the iPhone, that iPhone would probably cost you 10 grand. We couldn't afford it. Our lifestyles are supported by people in the world who um, earn very little. And I'm not, I, I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's, it's the reality of the world we live in at the moment. And, but how lucky and grateful I realize I am for living in the country that I do and the lifestyle that I have. 
Um, and I think it's enough to just be aware of that and to be grateful for it and to always try and highlight it and to do your bit to try and improve the lives of other. So I'm always grateful. And uh, yeah, I thank God every day for the things in my life. And um, How long have you been living in Rome? I've been in Rome for three years. Some people go to Rome and their, their faith is enhanced and some people go to Rome and they see the Vatican and their faith is destroyed. Someone told me that once when I moved to, Vatican, to Rome, they say, Cullum, this is going to be a unique experience for you as a Catholic, as a young Catholic in a very complicated world where, um, you know, traditional religion, not just Catholicism, but Islam, Judaism, Christianity, most mainstream monotheistic religions, they're declining. And they said, um, this will either really enhance your faith or it will destroy your faith. So it's been interesting. But there's a lot of people that think it's insane. Of know, course. That we hey, you throw someone, so much money at the church and... Obviously the church has done so much wrong in the past. But human beings have done wrong. I mean, it's not... I always think it's not the church that is inherently corrupt. There are corrupt elements of the church, but the church is not inherently corrupt. Human beings are flawed. You have corruption in the church. You have corruption in politics. You have bad people everywhere. Wherever you have a human being and you have money and power, that mix, it leads to a disaster. Like we're all flawed. We have good qualities. We have amazing qualities. And thank God there are more good people than bad people in the world. But I mean, people say to me, oh, the Vatican has so much money and it's a money-making machine. It has a lot of wealth. It gives out a lot of wealth every year to poor people. It is probably the biggest charity provider in the world. Um, Are there people who are squandering money and stealing money? Yes. Are there people doing that in government? Yes. Is there someone doing that in the corner store at your local shop where someone puts their hand and takes a fiver out of the till? Are there people in the Amazon warehouse who are taking products that they shouldn't? Yes. Happens everywhere. It's not unique to the church. But the church, I think, is an easy target. And so they blame it on the church. What's it like out there? There's a Vatican City, is there? Is it, yeah, Vatican is it its city. own city? It's its own state. So its the Vatican, state. yeah, it's the smallest state in the world. And so tell us about that. Well, they have their own police and their own... Ever, yeah, it's, um, the Vatican is in the middle of Rome. So how big is it? Ooh, I don't know the uh, square mile. It's like, it's, it's, it's small. In terms of Crow Park, would it be? Oh, no, it's, it's much bigger than Crow Park. Ten Crow Parks? It's, it's a few Crow Parks. I'd say probably ten Crow Parks. Yeah, it has a helicopter pad. It has a... Um, apartment blocks inside it. It has different dicasteries, which are like ministries. So like a government would have the Ministry for Health, the Ministry for Education. The Vatican being the governing body of the global Catholic Church, it has its ministries there. So it has a dicastery for culture, a dicastery for education, a dicastery for the sciences, um, a dicastery for life. <clears throat> so all the governing bodies of the different elements of the Catholic Church are all there uh, in this state and the interesting it's like it's fascinating why it is an independent state one is for financial reasons so they can be uh, they can have total control and autonomy over their finances uh, and, and you know people think oh that's a way they can squander money and move money around but many countries are blocked from doing business financially with other countries because of money laundering rules south sudan that i just mentioned if you live in many western countries you cannot transfer money into a bank account in south sudan they're blocked so for the church to be able to support its ministry and the nuns and priests in South Sudan, it needs to be completely independent and have its own banking system so it can move money to different parts of the world, be it South Sudan, be it Korea, North Korea, to help people in their ministry there. And, you know, that does leave it open to people when there's not as much traceability there and accountability. But it's a great thing, too, when it can help out 
oh, there's an order of nuns who need money to help people with leprosy, as we filmed, 4,000 people living with leprosy, the church is paying for a lot of their medication and, and housing, and the church can put the money in from the Vatican. You, you, never mean, hear, you never hear that side of the story, you know? Are you seeing anyone at the moment? No, I'm not. I see the Pope on a regular basis. and Have you been in a long-term relationship? Wow, this interview took a massive uh, turn all of a sudden. Have I? Yeah, I've been in long-term relationships in New York, like long-term two years. My problem is that I work so much and I'm never in one place. Like even when I lived in New York, I was always thinking I'll be going back. I'm going to move somewhere next and I'm going to settle down when I go there. I always made um But you must get a lot of attention. Like, let's call a spade a spade. You're very, very handsome. You're what? confident. Have you, you're, you've definitely been drinking. You have that Irish charm then when you're abroad <laughs> that I'm told so much about. Oh my goodness. You know what the funny thing is when you say, oh, um, you must get a lot of attention. Working for the Catholic Church, and I don't work for the Catholic Church, but working for a Catholic broadcaster, it's not very sexy. No, but you're the guy standing in the suit in front of the yeah, camera with all the lights it, on and that's sexy. You know, it, it looks, I mean, when, when I, maybe a woman goes by and you're standing with the suit on in front of the camera and the lights, sure, it looks impressive. But then they're like, hey, what are you on, MTV? You're like, no, I'm on the Catholic channel. They're like, what? <laughs> uh, you know what I get all the time uh, from girls, uh, maybe in Ireland, they'd say, oh, my mom loves you. My gran loves see, see I get that TV. a lot on Instagram. Yeah. My mom follows you. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, oh, but would you? No, I've never seen any of your stuff. But you like watching me on EWTN? Never heard of it. You're like, okay. So I think if I was trying to play the cool game, and I was conscious when I started, when I took up the EWTN gig, could this be career suicide? Because the way it's very uncool to be someone who is um, interested in your faith. And to defend the faith now, not that I'm going around, I'm not a propagandist for the church. We, I was just in Canada doing a big piece about how they really messed up in the residential schools when they were abusing a lot of the indigenous people. So we go and we tackle that face on and we ask tough questions to the authorities. But I just tell it as it is. I have to tell it as it is. And when I see the church doing great work, like you name the country. I've been to so many countries and seen firsthand. Are you saying that EWTN then is impartial? In general, no. I mean, they have a bias. They're the global Catholic television network, but they don't hide their bias. It's in the title. We're a Catholic television network. They have an interest to show the beauty of the faith and all that. But I have to be able to stand over everything I do because I still work a lot with the BBC. So a lot of stuff that I do is simulcast on EWTN and I would do the same report for the BBC or similar, a similar report. So when I go to somewhere like uh, the papal trip to Iraq, when I went with the Pope to Iraq, the first time a Pope went there, I have to do it so it will be broadcast on EWTN, but also on the BBC. And they have rigorous standards, and as I do, and it has to be fair and balanced. But if it's me saying, okay, um, here's what the church has done wrong, but you know what, I'm balanced. The church has done incredible work here in Canada with indigenous people, and it's done incredible work here in Africa. It has 47,000 schools today across the African continent. I'll say that. And people will go, oh, that's just, why you, that's propaganda for the church. And you say, no, that's the reality that maybe other networks don't focus on because it doesn't make news. But okay. like it's, I mean, I don't have to convince anyone. I just say, watch a report. Here are these nuns in Korea helping children from North Korea. Here are these great priests in uh, Ecuador. Here are these people in, in Argentina and South Africa and Angola, in Belarus and Ukraine. I could just keep on going. Wherever there is hurt and need in the world right now, Yes, you have the Red Cross and you have Doctors Without Borders and you have the UN, but they come and go. 
the but some people would there. say that that in itself is propaganda that you're only showing the good no, things no the no we don't and that's, when I was in Canada there the main thrust of the reports were showing the the abuse that the indigenous community suffered now if I was a propagandist I would go over there and I would ignore that and I'd say the Pope is coming to Canada he's apologizing for the wrongdoings of the church running the schools but here's a 10 minute report on the great things the church did whereas you can watch it online I did a 12 minute report and I think most of it is I go and I interview indigenous people and they talk about I was abused this way my brothers were abused and I sit and I listen and then I interviewed the Archbishop Richard Smith who's the most senior archbishop in the Catholic Church in Canada and he was coordinating the entire papal trip and I sat down with him and maybe he thought because it was EWTN I was going to say oh so tell me about the organization and it's all going well and my first question was Archbishop Smith uh what do you think when you hear about all these abuse stories? And I spell it out. I said, physical abuse, sexual abuse, beatings. How did the church get it so wrong? And he answers and he gave a good answer. And then I don't leave it at that. I said, what do you think when you hear those stories? Like, how can a man of faith do that? And he's like, yeah, how does someone wearing the collar? But then I think what is different about my coverage is he said, but Colm, you know, as well, we can't forget the good that's been done. And I allow him to say that. And I take on board what he says, and he has a point, and I get where he's coming from. Whereas I think in other places, that point of view is diminished, it's cut out, it's not even explored. Because Before he gets on to the good that they're doing, what are they doing for those survivors? Well, now, and it's a complicated thing, because who is to blame? These were schools, kind of similar to Ireland, in that they were run by the state. They were owned by the state. And then they were hand, handed over to the church to run. So the it was the, the government in Canada who said, we're building these schools all over Canada, a huge landmass Canada, like a continent almost. And they said, we want to assimilate the indigenous people. So we don't want them practicing their culture. We don't want them speaking their own language. These are uneducated people. This was their point of view. They're uneducated pagans out in the bush. We want to assimilate them to the new Canadian way of life. Uh, will run some of the schools. This is the program we want. They took it from the boarding school system in America. They had a kind of similar thing in America for Native Americans. They called them boarding schools. In Canada, they called them residential schools. And they said, we want, this is how it's going to be. This is how it's going to run. And they called in the church and said, you have to run it this way. This is how you do it. Now, this is where the church should have been. Yes. And this is what they did in many cases. We'll run the schools, but we will preach the gospel, which is, Jesus loves everybody. It doesn't matter if you're indigenous or not. And uh, yeah, we will we'll try and educate them. We'll teach them English. We want them to not live in poverty, but we'll do it with the gospel message, which is primarily love, acceptance, no matter who you are, whether you're rich or poor. Uh, but you would get bad eggs in there who would abuse, who would beat, who would use their positions of power. And uh, yeah. And but did you terrible. cover what they're doing for well, them? Like, that's a matter of debate. So the thing that they wanted was an apology. And here's another thing. So the the whole focus was on Pope Francis apologizing and offering an apology on behalf of the church. And all the media has focused on that and that apology. And everyone is saying, you know, this is terrible. The church hasn't apologized. The church has apologized on record numerous times before. And this is what I can't understand. People just omit that from reports. And I'm not saying an apology is leave it at that. But Pope John Paul II famously made an apology to the indigenous people. Pope Benedict in 2009 made a huge apology to the indigenous people. Pope Francis apologized earlier this year when the indigenous communities came to the Vatican um, 
a delegation came from across Canada. He apologized to them then. But it's different, they were explaining to me, when it's on Canadian soil, because the Indigenous people are very much, the land is sacred to them. So when the apology will be done here on our land, where the abuse took place, that will be different. But then you've got the other aspect, how much of the apology should come from the church and how much from the state. So the state were involved, they own the schools. Okay. They, they said, this is how we want them to be run. But it's easy for them, when all the scandal comes out, to say, oh, it's the book. it wasn't us, it was the church. But the church is and should always be held to a higher account because they're people of God and they're preaching these high ethical moral values so they should be held accounted, accountable to those ethical standards. But do they think somewhat that just because an apology comes from the church that they don't have to pay compensation or anything like that to these people? That it's just No, like- they don't think that, but I, I, you know, should they pay compensation and how much? That's another uh, question. So for example, the first problem is a lot of these, and again, see the way I'm talking about this in a rational way. Some people jump and go, you're defending. I'm not defending at all. People are getting paid out by the church all the time now for abuse. And that's a good thing. If they if they're, have been abused, if there's been wrongdoing, that is a very good thing. But the problem is, and this would be the same in any place in, in the world, if it's going back so far and it's hard to prove, if it's going back 30, 40 years, and the person who was, you're saying the person who was meant to have perpetrated these crimes is long dead and there are no records. When someone comes and says, I was abused by this priest in this year, in this, yeah. how, do you, how do you prove it? And then, like, if we believe in a legal system of proof and having, so, um, yeah, you know, putting the church aside, you're looking for evidence. You're, you're looking, looking for, for evidence and you're looking for fairness. Yeah. So is every claim to be held seriously? And is every, how much do you give each person who says I was abused? Okay. Now, there was abuse done. We know that. So when someone comes, I think the best the church can do now is when these people come forward with these stories and the abusers have long died. Uh, the church has to listen to them has to take seriously what they're saying and has to work with the government in Canada. And they're doing that now about can there be compensation and how much they should be compensated. I mean, the government of Canada has to compensate them for many other issues too, about taking their land, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's a complicated thing. And by saying it's complicated is not diminishing how horrific things were, but you have to sometimes, and this is what we don't do now, you have to take your emotions out of things. Do you ever get hate online for yeah, being associated sometime, with the church? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I get uh, what messages. kind of things would you get? I what have I got? I've uh, oh, you can imagine pedophile enabler. Um, I interviewed a very prominent Catholic called Cardinal Pell once, who was uh, he was jailed in in Australia for a year, accused of child abuse. He was found guilty, but then he was it went to Australia's highest court and it was appealed, and seven high court judges unanimously overturned his conviction. So I went and I interviewed him afterwards when he came out of prison and it was on the BBC for half an hour. It was on EWTN. It was on ABC in Australia. It it kind of went globally, this interview. But people thought I was too easy on him. But I had an opportunity. You've got half an hour with this guy. He had been interviewed before that. He'd gone through this year and a half court case in Australia where every bit of evidence was put at him. This way, that way, he was cross-examined. It was ultimately overturned. You weren't there to cross-examine him again. Well, if I, I could have, but I, in my eyes, that's a waste of time. Yeah. I'm sitting there for half an hour. I don't have a legal team behind me. I don't have... If I had a piece of evidence that I thought, whoa, this is a, a smoking gun. This is a gotcha. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. So my best for half an hour to use that is to say, how did it, what was it like in prison? 
to go from being one of the highest ranking members of the Catholic Church, to be the highest in Australia, third highest in the world at one stage, in charge of the Vatican Bank. How do you go from such heights to such lows? How does that feel in prison? How did they treat you in prison? Did you ever think about the boys who accused you? But, but I, I let him speak. And uh, I didn't say, I believe you, that you're innocent. I didn't say, I think you're guilty either. And I think people live in, people are so used to polarized media, where the media, has, especially in the United States, CNN, MSNBC, very left, Fox News, Newsmax, very right. And a lot of people now, uh, they take a side and they go with it. And they're expecting me to do the same. So when they see me sit, and at some points he might crack a joke and I would laugh and they go, how, again, the emotions, the, how can you laugh with that person or whatever? But most of the time I'm just sitting and I'm listening and I'm listening. I see my job as to sit and have a good, intelligent conversation. Maybe ask questions that you're not going to hear in other networks. Don't underestimate the intelligence of the listener or the viewer. Let them make up their mind. But you can understand as well somebody watching at home that's very, very hurt sees you laughing and joking with this guy. And they're thinking like... I can understand, but I don't agree. Yeah, but I don't agree with them because here's the thing. Most people... I had a guy come up to me in New York, actually. I went into a coffee shop one morning that was in Australia. This was recently, an Australian breakfast place. And the guy came over and he recognized me from the interview with Cardinal Pell. And he said, do you realize like you, how many people have committed suicide because of that guy? And you, you, you put him on television? You... But then it's the whole thing of if someone is convicted of a crime in our legal system, this, be it the Crown, the Australian Crown legal system, if he's convicted and in front of a jury... Then the conviction is overturned by the highest court in the land, like not Mickey Mouse court, the seven high court judges, all with brilliant legal training, brilliant legal minds who have got to the top of their careers as high court judges, unanimously. And remember, this person is watching as a viewer at home, is reading kind of tabloid news, is reading stuff on the internet. These people have studied the evidence for months and gone over it. And they say that his, his conviction has to be overturned. They say that there was never enough evidence to convict him in the first place. Now, they don't say he's innocent. And then after that, the main Australian watchdog, we call them the, BA, the BAI here, mm. who, who monitor the media and kind of hold them to account. In the UK, it's Oxcom. So it's the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Like the, the Broadcasting Authority of Australia, whatever their name is. They come out and say they fine some of the big broadcasters who are meant to be neutral and say in the lead up to that case when he was convicted, and then you have to wait a while for it to come to court, you were completely biased and unfair in your coverage, which ultimately could have swayed the jury because it was everywhere. And even TV networks, um, the minute he was convicted, they portrayed him as being guilty. And the reason was he was already unpopular in Australia because he had conservative views. He was anti-abortion, he was anti-gay marriage. So he would go on TV, he would argue against the popular narrative of the day. And he, half of the country hated him anyway. So as soon as he was accused, everyone went guilty, guilty, guilty. It's trial by media. And it was now, of course, the media will, if we had them on here from ABC Australia or Channel 7 or Channel 9. But I think any person with a brain in their head, if you played back the media. For example, after I did the interview with him on the BBC, like we have a camera here, I put a camera on it like that and we put it up online. Channel 7 and different TV networks in Australia took the footage and they did news reports. If you watch it, it's so interesting to see how they portray him. So I asked them a question like this. And because it's a podcast, they took a bit of audio of what he said. They took the footage of him talking to me and put it in slow motion. They darkened the screen 
and they put up on text, text on the screen of what he was saying with the audio, but they put it in blood red. So the, the, the text was in blood red. So you've got this guy in his eight who just turned 80. Picture this on TV. He's in his 80s. He's talking in slow motion, looks serious. They've darkened the picture and then there's this text on blood red. He looks evil. He looks evil. And no matter what he's saying, he looks guilty. And all these things matter. When you're, when you're telling a story in media, all these things matter and they portray an image. And, and that's what happened, I believe, to him. Now, I'm not saying I believe he's innocent or he's guilty, but I do believe he didn't have a fair trial. And, and, and you know what? The High Court of Australia agrees with me. So for me to say, I think it's reasonable that he is allowed to come on BBC and tell his story, his side. I think that's completely reasonable, yeah. What's the goal for Colin Flynn? What, what do you want to do? Where do you want to... What's... Find a happy wife, happy life. Just You're not going to find a happy wife <laughs> hopping from country to country, 12 countries in 14 weeks or whatever I'm not it was. desperate, Alan. I'm just very available. My number's on the screen now. If you're out there... Um, or if you're matter. in... Beggars can't be choosers. I'll take whatever I can get. If you're in 50 kilometres of Ranelagh, just start swiping. Oh, oh, come here. 50 kilometres, like 50 miles. That's 500 what's the, miles. That's what's not... the goal? What do you want to do? You don't, you don't want to be in Rome the rest of your life. No, I don't want to be in Rome. I want to, um, I, I don't know. The, the funny thing is, when you're young, when you're a kid, you have these dreams of what you want to do. We live in a precarious time in the media because the media game is changing so much. Radio is not radio anymore. It's multimedia. TV shows, the big late night talk shows, the late late show is not what it used to be. Um, people have YouTube channels, more viewers than RT shows. I think in the game now, like success is just, keeping telling the stories you want to tell having control over what you want to do and just reaching more and more people that's the name but of the can game. you live your life contract to contract are you happy doing that yeah, well i maybe i'm different in a way i've been very lucky with contracts and that i've never i've i'm i do well in the contracts i have they're pretty solid I've never been in life without a, like work i i'm saying i'm turning down work in, in a lot of cases which is a great privilege and now I know it's a young person's game. When I am later in life, will I still have will this demand for Colin Flynn reports? Who knows? But I think, you know what? So far, it's worked for me. I think I have an ability to connect with people. I hope I do. I think I, I want to go talk to people who aren't normally on the radio or on... I, I hope I look at things in a different way. So I think people still want to hear those stories. And I think with the Catholic Church as well, um, okay, it hasn't been popular for a long time to be involved in the Catholic Church and all that. But these are great stories, you know. Take out the Catholic faith. When I was in South Sudan, okay, they're, forget that they're Catholic. These people in Africa, in poor rural jungle in Africa, helping people who have leprosy. Mm. Like, that's an amazing story to tell. There'll always be a market for those kind of stories. But what's your goal? Like, My goal is to return to Ireland someday. And do you want the, do you want a Colin Flynn TV show? Yeah, I would love to have my own show on radio and television here in Ireland, whether it's on RTE, News Talk, my own channel. What online. would that show be like? Going out, going out and about? That, no, it would be a show sitting in a studio like this and just interviewing great people who have very interesting stories. A bit like what you're doing, Alan, where you ask great questions, you have a great mix of people. What I do on my podcast now, just people who I think have fascinating stories to tell and not going with the popular narrative all the time, which I think is what is missing in Irish media. I think people jump on trends. I think people jump on what's hot on social media. If it's happening on Twitter, it'll be on all the radio shows the next day. And I think, why not do something that kind of challenges you a bit and um, 
you know, is a bit different and maybe looks at something again, a bit like the, the church story. So the churches in Canada, would you dare have a guest on who would say, yeah, there's a lot of wrong that's been done here, but what about, and I'm not, I'm just using that as an example as because it's what I'm doing now. Yeah. But all the kind of social issues of the day where there is a predominant opinion on it and, you know, you get in trouble and you get cancelled if you question that predominant opinion. Why not have a show where you can have an opinion and without the fear of being cancelled straight away? I'm not saying that we go on and we be extreme and we allow nutcases on, but just like good, fun conversations where... Do you think that will ever happen? Yes, absolutely. It has to. It will absolutely happen. On mainstream television or YouTube? I, I, I think, you know, there's a phrase, go woke, go broke. And I think... Um, Every year I work at a broadcasting conference called Radio Days. It's the biggest broadcasting conference in Europe. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to work at because it's a bit like the Eurovision. We moved to a different European city. This year we were in Malmo, Sweden. Last year, uh, in the last couple of years, we've been in Paris, we've been in Milan, we've been in Vienna. It is a great gig. But around a thousand broadcasters come from around the world. So representatives of Norwegian radio, of French radio, of maybe RTE, of the BBC. And they talk about how the radio industry is changing. And this year, I was so surprised. They had a discussion about shows which are trying really hard to be woke and being diverse, failing in the ratings. And they were saying, why is that? Is it because we're trying too hard to be diverse and to be woke and we're not allowing different stories on and opinions? And you see online, Russell Brand has his own YouTube channel where he's not extreme left or right, but he says some stuff that goes against the popular narrative. If someone come on the show and said, I, I'm not sure if I should get the third, fourth booster, whereas in other networks that might be not allowed, go on and talk about that, he will have them on, he'll challenge them, but he'll allow them to speak. It is exploding in viewership. Shows like that where people are allowed to talk and explore things. The Joe Rogan experience. There's a perfect example. Joe was the pioneer doing this. Joe started a podcast where you could go on for three hours and talk about something. He had people on talking about UFOs in Area 51. But he would get into it and he would talk about it and he would do what I love doing. Let the listener make up their mind if it's wacko or if there's some truth in it. It became the biggest podcast in the world. What's life like in Rome outside the church? What's it like living out there? Do you go out much? I love, by the way, you go from here. It's brilliant. Go on. Do I go out much? Um, I, I don't drink an awful lot. I, I love going out for every morning I go to a coffee shop. I love going to the coffee shop in the morning. I go to a, a coffee shop called Barnum and it is brilliant because you meet wonderful people from all over the world who come there. It's one of the few coffee shops in Rome where you can work with your laptop. So you'll meet someone who's a digital nomad from uh, the Netherlands who's coming and working on a fashion brand. You meet someone from America. Are you that annoying guy that buys a coffee and sits there for no, two hours? I am. I spend my life savings in this coffee shop. Okay. In fact, the they owner... They like to see you come in there. They love to see me come in. The owner, Danny, he tells everyone else to close their laptops, but he allows me to keep it open because I'll get a breakfast and I'll get a coffee, then I'll get a tea. and I, I spend a fortune in there. All right. So um, they don't mind me sitting in there. So you don't go out, like you don't go partying? No, or... I, well, I go for... I love going for dinners. I love meeting friends for dinner. There's always someone at the Vatican who wants to meet for a dinner and it's just... That Vatican. sounds really boring. No, There's always someone at the Vatican that wants to go for dinner. And, you know, it'll be a nice restaurant. There's stories that you just couldn't make them up. Fact is stranger than fiction. Uh, after a few glasses of wine. Do you, you hang know, around with a lot of priests and bishops? Yeah, and I've always felt really comfortable in the in the company of priests and nuns. I grew up, my uncle is a priest, my aunt is a nun. I had big uh, families, so that kind of wasn't unusual back in the day. 
but just um, I just had a great experience growing up with them from the chaplain in my school Father John Malloy I was an altar boy I would go and train things that you would never do now you know my man would drop me off on a Saturday at the church in Ennis and I would go in and sometimes other altar servers wouldn't show up and I'd be there with the priest of my own and we'd be he'd be showing me how to be an altar server in the sacristy but I had nothing but wonderful warm experiences EWTN are very lucky to have you like where they'll never find another person no, that has not. your love for the church but it's not, and your ability I have a love for life Alan I love life I love people I love people's stories I think everywhere you go in the world there are good people and it just so happens that a lot of them are, that I meet are doing it as part of the Catholic Church but okay. of course you can find good people everywhere Do you mind me asking are you doing any you, dating in Rome? Oh my goodness <laughs> I'm sure a lot of women are wondering Now you don't have to answer it oh, do, you, Can I plead the fifth on this one? No, If you're I, not comfortable answering no, it that's I'm, fine I'm comfortable I just, it's not that interesting Yeah I sometimes go on dates um, With you know, Italian ladies or Sometimes Italian ladies but finding dating I think for dating in life now is difficult. It's more complicated because uh, you have the dating apps and all that kind of stuff. In a city like Rome, I don't speak Italian and the Italians don't speak good English. So that's kind of that knocked in the head. A lot of the Americans that are there are just passing through. I'm passing through too. So in theory, if I was to meet someone and they're like, are you going to settle in Ireland? Yes, I'd love to. Are there opportunities here in Ireland yet? Maybe not. Are you going to go to the States again? If there's some opportunities in the States there for me. So would I go back to the States? But are you dating at the moment? No, but this podcast isn't about me. Is there, I'm not asking there's you about obviously, a date. There's obviously a huge cultural difference between there Italians is, and, and Irish. Uh, yeah, you, don't, there is. you don't think you'd settle down with an Italian? Oh, come here, listen. Uh, if the right one came along, who would who would settle with me, Alan? You know? How will you stop? I love the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm I'm talking about the church. I mean, that's not... Do you think your drive to always do better is almost a negative thing? Like you said earlier on that you were always trying to do better and it's, always... It's, it is a, it's a poison chalice. It's a double-edged sword. It really is. Yeah, I... Are you very hard on yourself? Yeah, I am. I'm very... Uh, I'm never fully content. Now, who is nowadays? But I very... I never rest on successes and I'm proud that I've had some good successes in in a very tough industry in media. Uh, but even like last week, I was in Tuscany, beautiful Tuscany in the in north of Italy, mid-Italy, near Florence. I was at Andrea Bocelli's house and we were doing a, an interview, a big exclusive interview with Andrea Bocelli and we went to his concert. And most people say to me like, uh, that's incredible, like well done. And I never see it that way. And that's not fake modesty or false modesty. No, I'm the exact same. You know, yeah. you know what it's like the next yeah. day when I wake up and the piece has gone out, it's, it's over for me. And I think, what's next? Okay. And I look and I say, okay, we had that Andrea Bocelli thing, but that was done. Why am not I doing this thing in the States? Why am I doing this? But that really drove me in the US. So every time I would have a hit on the BBC, I would never sit back for a day and go on the booze and... and um, I remember once I won a PPI award, which in Ireland is, it was a big, innovative, the most innovative show of the year for a show I did on Radio 1 here, Extra, called The Feed. And that was great. A, a good achievement, a national radio award for most innovative show of the year. And um, the next day, I was on a plane going to the States to do some other thing. So I, I tempered my drinking that night. I didn't drink much. I wasn't partying. And the next day, I'd almost forgot about it on the plane. And I was thinking then, okay, this thing has to be really good. This thing has to be, it can't be a B or a C. It has to be an A+. And, but the problem is, you're never fully happy then. And I, I always thought, when I was a kid, my dream was, 
if I work in RT in any capacity, if I'm holding a microphone for someone, dream come true. And then you get that. And then when I was in radio, I thought if I work in television in some way, I'll be happy. Then you start working on the Today Show on Nationwide. And then I thought, I'm going to go to New York. If I go to New York and if I just do some stuff with the BBC, ah, to be able to say I'm doing that. And then you do that. And then you think, now I want to do this. And you know, it's, you're never fully <clears throat> satisfied. So it, it's a bad thing in a way. And I think recently I'm learning to temper that a bit and just to be thankful and grateful. Gratitude is the thing that I'm learning. Uh, I think that comes with being a bit more mature and more level-headed, whereas I think for 10 years in New York, you're just, you're almost psychotic running around trying to be successful. What do you do to switch off then? What do you do? I never switch off because I'm, yeah, I never Have you, do. You've no hobbies. I do, I, like I swim. I've been swimming every day that I've been back here. My hobby is going to coffee shops and restaurants. I like walking a lot. But um, when you go to coffee shops and restaurants, you're working. yeah. Yeah, I'm on my laptop. Wow. Because I love it. I, it's not like work to me. So I say I'm a workaholic, but if someone's hobby was to cycle and they said, I get up every day and cycle in the morning, you wouldn't say, God, that guy's, there's something wrong with him. You'd say he's doing what he loves. So if a woman comes along, are you going to make time Man, and, I love that you're and not go <laughs> Do you have someone in mind? Shops? Do you have someone in mind for me? I don't, but I just oh. find it really interesting okay. how you're so consumed by work because I'm the same. You know, but I like I, to think that but, but why are you single then? Because I know why I'm single I think uh, I've had relationships And I've messed up In that I've been too focused on work And not invested in the relationship And I, you know I look back now And think I should have done that differently You know what I, what I hate when I, when I interview people And I say any regrets And they go no regrets And I go come on Shut up I always ask No but really if you, any, you must have some regrets But I mean you know, it's good not to uh, dwell on them yeah. and all that. But of course, like we've all regrets. But why, why are you single? Well, I, I'm single because I work too much. <laughs> this podcast has gotten very depressing all of a sudden. Not at all. I think it's interesting to find out what's going on in your head. And, and you know, uh, dating is a huge thing at the minute because everyone that's single is trying Tinder and saying, oh, it's a load of crap or it's this, that and the other. It's very hard to meet people on the same wavelength as you. And you're going to find it exceptionally hard to meet people on the same wavelength. And I think for the first time I've met somebody very similar to myself mm. that I don't, I don't dwell on successes. People say, wow, you brought out your own gin last year. That's massive. And I was just like, well, it wasn't massive for this reason, this reason, this reason. Yeah. We could have done better here, here and here. I wish it was here. I wish it was there. I wish this happened. I, I, that's so true because when you first came in, when we were in the kitchen having tea and I was asking you about the podcast and you were telling me about how many people listen and the mechanics yeah. of it, and I said, that's incredible. That's for a new podcast to have that many listeners and all that. And you were like, yeah, is it? It isn't, it isn't. And I, I was thinking to you, because I'm always like, everyone else is doing better than me. Okay. And I've got to do, you know, I've got to push myself, you see, uh, that person or this person. But um, that's interesting because that was your reaction to me. No, I said, that's not that good. And I was thinking, no, I know the numbers. Like yeah. that is exceptionally good. You know, it is good, but I have a goal at the minute. Um and I'm, I'm doing something at the end of the year. And I hope that once I achieve this goal and if it goes the way I want it to go, then I can take the foot off the gas. What is it? Bit. Give me the exclusive. Come on. This is my podcast now. My guest today is Alan Clark. I'm bringing out a product. Oh. And I don't want to say too much because last year the whole thing was the big news coming soon and it was the gin. And I strung it out for weeks and everyone was like, oh my God, what is it? And it was so strung out because there was so many delays with the label and with the bottle and everything. And everything that happened was, was no one's fault. It was just the way the world was gone at the minute. And, you know, everything was so hard to get. Uh, there was nobody really to blame. So I'm not saying too much this year, but I do have a goal in my head. And if 
and I'm working so hard, like I'm working seven days a week, I don't switch off. But if it goes the way I want it to go. He told me what it was beforehand, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, and your DMs well, will go crazy. I might as well spill the beans. He is launching his country and Western music career. <laughs> My and he's, album. He's dropping his first studio album <sighs> later in the year. Yeah. So I'd hope that, I'd hope that I can take some time then and focus on finding somebody. But but who'd want to be with us at the minute? But Nobody. The thing, you know what the thing is? It, we are, we're too spoiled. We, we have too many options and that is the problem. With women? With everything in life. Speak for yourself. No, I don't mean that. Come on. I'm not exactly I, throwing themselves <laughs> at me now. No, I, I don't mean that. I mean, and nor did I, but I mean, in our parents' generation, the likelihood is that our parents married someone from the local town or the village and, and, and they got a job locally and that was it for life. The idea... In our parents' generation, and definitely in our grandparents' generation, that you would maybe, after college, go and live in this country for a few years, maybe get a job that could transfer you to another country, you'd work for a Google or an Amazon that have offices here, there, and everywhere. That was unheard of. That really was. And so we can do that. And that's yeah. incredible. But with that comes its challenges. So more instability, more uncertainty, the, the bedrock foundation of your life, like where is home, where are you staying? And when that is unstable... Everything else is a bit rocky on top of it. So there's a great um, play. There's a great book from the 40s that became a play in the 60s from the States called Inherit the Wind. And it's all about that, that everything in life is a bargain. You get nothing for nothing. So when we started to fly planes, you can travel from one country to another, but the skies are now filled with gasoline. All these different ways, you know, we have iPhones, our social... uh, interaction has gone way down you go and look in any restaurant everyone's on their phones yeah. but you have wikipedia you have encyclopedias in your hand you have every video known to exist on youtube you have this phenomenal resource but there's a sacrifice everything in life comes at a sacrifice we can travel we have more opportunities than any other generation and that comes at a sacrifice and one of them is relationships a uh, happiness feeling fulfilled and um sometimes there's beauty and simplicity but, uh, you know, when you've cracked it, tell me how. If you had a goal for the next two years, where would you like to see yourself in two years' time? In two years, I'd love to see myself in with a, a daily radio show. In Ireland? Somewhere. Doesn't have to be in Ireland. Doesn't have to be in Ireland. Daily radio, interviewing great people and just doing what I'm doing on a bigger scale. That's insane. Like daily radio. So radio is struggling so hard. Uh, But you know, you're right. When I say radio, I just mean a daily output, some sort of show, whether it be on podcast. Surely a man with your skills and your ability and your looks should be aiming for daily TV. Alan, can you, are you in the market to be an agent? Can you be my agent and go and Why? talk to the powers that be in RT and BBC? Come on, Colm, let's, no, let's call a spade a spade here. Who in Ireland would hold a candle to you? There's no one. There's no one in Ireland at the minute that can go around. You know I'm clipping this part and putting it up on no, social no, no, media. No, 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 no. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's blow smoke up your arse, but there isn't. They're not making people like that anymore. And that might be a contra- controversial belief. But there's nobody that driven anymore to learn how to do radio, TV, technical, be on camera, Alan, the journalism. there are so many talented people out there. The problem is the Irish media market is small and it is fickle. And I think the problem is, I mean, I... You know, I got to be careful what I say, but I think in certain broadcasters here, I think I won't mention names, but they don't give opportunities to people. It's not just me. It's who you know. It's it's not not even no. It's not even who you know. 
they you look at the schedule and the schedule doesn't change much and the people who do get on the schedule you think are they very are they talented enough for the role like there are radio stations and tv stations i think in the past and they, they do this more in the uk and in the states where they bring in talent and they foster talent. They bring in someone and they recognize some potential Mm -hmm. and they bring that seed and they grow it all the way up to a beautiful tree. Whereas now it's kind of like they're rushing to see who's hot on TikTok and like trying to bash them into a a radio format or an existing format. Whereas like they're looking outside all the time and not inside. I was a store manager in Aldi once and I had a motto and it came up in a podcast a few weeks ago somebody had said that geez he wasn't great to work for an hour that I was fairly strict you know and maybe I was but I was always striving for perfection and I wanted the shop to look as best it could that night but I was always pushing staff for promotions Mm. and I had this belief that the best way to succeed in life is to help others to succeed of course and there was guys there and I have no problem saying this my manager turned around to me and he said that guy that guy's useless he's not going to make it as a manager and I'd be pushing these guys, go for it, go for it, be a manager, be a manager. And you see them now running other stores. Maybe they're good, maybe they're not good, maybe that manager was right, maybe he's a shite manager and they couldn't get anyone to do it, I don't know. But I was definitely of that way of thinking, of nurturing them and pushing them on to be better. Mm. Now maybe some of the the ones in the lower ranks didn't want to be pushed on and I was a pain in the hole to them. <laughs> and yeah. they were like, I just want to come in and work on the till and go home. Mm. Whereas I was pushing people out. But when you go into a local radio station at the minute, it's here, do that and get out of my sight and have it done. The time isn't there to nurture people. There's nobody yeah, training people. You have to just, you have to have the uh, the drive to just figure it out yourself and yeah. teach yourself. You Unfortunately. Yeah. It's a Because I think for a young person today, uh, graduating from media studies who wants to have a career in media and something that's well paid I don't mean they're becoming like the richest person in the world but someone who wants to make a living support a family and want to make it a career for their life to like where can you do that in Ireland today as a bro- if they want to be a broadcaster and they want to retire and where can they do it yeah. it's very difficult the opportunities and I think you know we have we do have they complain about license fee and uh, you know Revenue is smaller, but we still do have well-funded media in this country. There should be great opportunities there all the time for young people coming out of college. And I just think it's lacking. You know, and I see certain broadcasters do something like, oh, God, that's the same they've been doing for years. Or that special that they're, they're doing in the summer is the same special with the same people for the last number of years. Like, where, you know, surely there can be... Why does that happen? So like if oh you, I we need another two hours I could tell you I is it lazy is it lazy it's lazy it's people who are managers who shouldn't be managers or it's people who are have more of a civil servant mindset than a kind of a a, a, a good media head on them where they know what works and what doesn't a, a lot of places where you fail and you're not it doesn't matter if you fail one thing not, that that bugs me the most is when you see and it's not that I'm big into country music but you see the country music special on the late late and you're like well, here we are again with the same singers that were on it last year and the same now, singers RT, that were on it the year before. In defense, not that I'm defending RT or anything, but they will turn around and probably say, well, look, the ratings are X. You know, the ratings were massive for that. You know, 40% of the country watched the worlds. You get 40% ratings. That's a good point. And there is an audience who wants to see Philomena Begley and Derek Ryan and uh, Daniel O'Donnell. Mm. But they should never rest on that because that audience in the past was a given. They were always going to be watching RT 
Nowadays, like that TV we have in front of us here, you turn that on, it defaults first to YouTube and Netflix. It doesn't default to RTE. Mm -hmm. So they've really got to be innovative and be thinking ahead. Yes, have the, the stars on that people want to see, the certain the generation wants to see the Philomena Begley's, but to just be nurturing talent. I mean, I look at people over the years like Hardy Bucks. Remember Hardy Bucks? Yeah, sure. They're from down my neck of the woods. And just like and the guy who I think is a genius, Francis Higgins, uh, what's his name? His real name is Francis something, but he does Schlug now. And he's got his own YouTube channel. The guy is a comical genius. He was working for Russia today. He was working. Here's the thing. Yeah. He started in RTE. They didn't know what to do with his talent. They didn't. He was kind of pushed out. They didn't give him the opportunities. He's doing his own stuff brilliantly. Russia today came along and said, we'll yeah. use you. I look at someone like him and he's doing brilliant stuff on YouTube and he's getting so many views. And it's not just that young people get it. And he gets them. He just knows what they want. People in the country. And that's very valuable. I'm thinking, why aren't RTE coming along saying, you know what you do? We don't want to change it. We're not going to put one of our Donnybrook producers on it to try and reformat it for what we do. Do what you do. But Go the around the towns of Ireland in the character of Schlug from the local pub that they all get. And don't stream it on your own YouTube account. Stream it on our YouTube account so we get the views. There's the money. Here comes the Plowing Championship. Go to the Plowing Championship. Do your, he does six hour streams, live streams of him walking along, just speaking like a lad from the country. Yeah. And it's brilliant and it gets massive views. Do that at the Plowing Championships, but just stream to RTE's YouTube account. Now, he, he probably wouldn't do it now. But the Hardy books were huge on YouTube. They were like mega and, on YouTube. And then YouTube. They, they turned it into an RTE2 show. And, and then it was terrible. And it was terrible because it had. Why do RTE do that? Well, look, they... They're ticking too many boxes. I, I don't sound like an RTE basher because I'm not. RTE do many great things. But it's like if something is really working on YouTube and the audience get it, and like that audience is different than a TV audience, leave it alone. Yeah. Let them do exactly what they're doing. If you watch the credits of it then, you've got executive producers, associate producers, <laughs> and this and that, and it's like, they all have Mary's their Mary's first cousin. And the thing that's come in as the beautiful piece of cheese at the start is going out as a piece of Swiss cheese, and it's got loads of holes in it, because, well, you can't say that, because that might offend someone, and that, no, because you have to cut to a commercial break in this. Okay. And then it just, it didn't have that rawness to it, and it, it didn't it didn't work. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I, you got off the plane, and you put up a video of you coming down the steps of the plane, and I texted you, and I said, hey, are you around for a podcast? Instantly you wrote back, yes, Wednesday, half to my house. <laughs> so like, thank you so much. This is your holiday this week, but as I know, you don't switch off. So you're probably loving this. I love talking to interesting people who have good stories. And uh, normally I say no to a lot of podcasts because I don't think that I've got an interesting story per se. I'm just telling you about me going around. No, I found interview. you very interesting. Well, thank you for saying that. You're, I, I think you're completely deluded. No. And you need your head checked for sure. Like but, I said at the very start, I've followed you for a long time. And it is a privilege to be sitting here across from you because I do admire <laughs> you. And I, whilst I'm a jack of all trades myself... I wouldn't be as polished as you or put oh, the, the extra, a, no, you know, you're definitely, I'm the little turd, way. but you're the little polished oh, diamond come off in, the, in the corner. Alan, whatever you, whatever the doctor has subscribed, keep, <laughs> keep taking it. Cause no, it, is, take it. it is working wonders. You need to take the compliments because you know, in this industry, they're hard to get. Well, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to all the uh, commissioning editors of networks around the world and to tell them about me just okay. in the way you did. Like I know them. And then go to all the, the young and the, the, the single women in a, around Westport, around Mayo. and tell There's them not all, many. I, I'm looking. Tell I, them about I'm me on 
some too. Tinder here. <laughs> tell them and, and just speak about me in those in the way you did. Now they're up for a massive disappointment when they meet me. Do you know who you're like now? You're like Mario. Oh, Mario Salerno. Yeah. The, this is what I need. I need all the producers to contact yeah. me. That Colin, is so funny. Thank you very much. And I hope to, uh, when you're big and famous and you do get your daily output, I hope I can come and have another chat with you and we can talk about how you met it. Alan, you'll be my boss at the network then. So when you really? become the big boss, give me the show. Okay, baby? Oh, sorry. I thought you meant like I'd be your agent. No, well, you'd be my agent or you'd be the head of the network. And do you need I'd a cameraman like, in Rome? Uh, we're always looking for talented people. I'm handy with a camera. Are you now. Handy with a camera? Yeah. No, but I want you to become the head of the the network, whatever network it is, and then I come in and I'm like, "Hey, baby, remember me, Showbiz? Why come don't on. we set up our own network? Let's do it, Clark. You know, hey, stranger things have happened. We Clark. could put it out there that we're looking for an investor to set up our own network. You know what? It's funny. You watch it's you watch how they're doing it in the UK with talk TV now, and they have um, what's the other. Uh, there's a new conservative one that's on uh, GB News. Is this the one that uh, tried to get um, your man over, Piers Morgan, over to? Well, something? he did. Piers Morgan is now on Talk TV. Okay. Doing Piers Morgan Uncensored, which is simulcast on Fox News Nation in the US and Sky News Australia in um, Down Under. I keep an eye on everything that's happening. The whole so game is changing. who's funding that? That's uh, Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, yeah. Hey, let's put it out there. It's not, no, it's not. Hey, Mario owes problems. you a favour. We don't need to go on Rupert Murdoch's channels. At the we moment. could we... contact Mario. Mario, you know when you said, if I need anything, well, I need 10 million. We need 10 million to get this off the ground. And uh, What would we call it? But here's the thing, you don't need 10 million anymore. You need a good idea and you need a setup like this and off you go. Look what Russell Brand did, you know. One million. You don't need a million, you need two Ah, guys. come on now, we need comfort. You need a set or you need something, you know, but... <laughs> I pulled into this this uh, this road where you live, and the first car I met was a huge Bentley. I've never seen one in Ireland this in my life. That wasn't my car, by the way. The <laughs> second one I saw was a Range Rover Vogue. It's like the Dublin version of Only Way is Essex. Yeah, it's I'm great like, to go out and look at the neighbours' cars sometimes <laughs> and think, "Wow, yeah, you need to work harder." You know. All right, Colm. Thanks a million, and keep her lit and safe journey back to Rome. Alan, thank you so much. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com 
The Big News Coming Soon podcast is proudly sponsored by BRB Homes. BRB Homes is Ireland's number one award-winning manufacturer of factory-built homes. We take your home from start to finish. Our homes are A-rated and meet planning regulations. We build to your requirements and your budget. The cost includes your home being turnkey and our chartered engineer's fees. Please get in touch for a viewing of our show homes a brochure or for more information let brb homes take the stress out of your build check out brbhomes.ie